Hello and welcome to another edition, episode number 26 of the Lab Epstein Hitting Podcast. Episode number 25 aired, Jake, last week, if you can believe that. We already did 25 episodes of this thing. We're on episode number 26, and when I refer to Jake, joining me, of course, renowned hitting instructor, professional evaluator, former coach, friend, and co-host, live and in living color, that stupid saying again, he's in the mountains today, Jake Epstein. Saturday is work day. Next to playoffs. I love playoff baseball. I gotta say, like I haven't watched. I, I hardly watch. You know, I watch highlights. I'll, I'll, I'll dig into videos and highlight. You know, home runs, doubles, that kind of stuff. You know, during the season. You know, on MLB.com. But I'll tell you what, I, I don't really sit down and watch games. I've watched a lot of baseball the past two weeks because uh, the playoffs are just so exciting and. There's energy, finally, even though there's no fans. Actually, the fans in Texas, that's awesome. It makes it so much better just having a few thousand fans in there. I've really enjoyed watching those games. It has been really exciting, and just to hear the crowd noise. And I'm, I'm a little bit biased towards Fox, but I, I think Fox has always done a great job with the microphones and capturing that crowd noise, even going back to when I was a kid, when you were younger as well, and and. I love the fact that fans are now allowed back into the ballpark. And I think we've got two great series here that we're watching with the Braves and the Dodgers and the Astros and the Rays. And I'll tell you what, those Astros, they just don't go away. And I I saw this on Twitter the other day. If they do win the World Series, end up winning the World Series, at least coming back in this series against the Rays, Twitter will – I think the world will explode. It will just be so typical of 2020. It would be a, a full 2020 circle if that happened. Yeah, I don't know where and where are they playing the World Series? Is yeah, it going to be I, in in Arlington? I'm not 100 percent sure to be honest with you. I'm the yeah. whole bubble thing. Anytime I hear about a bubble, I, I I cringe. Same thing with the NFL. They're thinking about doing a bubble. I, and uh, by the way, this Rays team, if they the Astros do come back and win, this Rays team I think is the strongest team that I've seen in many, many years, and they've had so much success since 2008. I I really enjoy watching the, the, the race. <laughs> and I've been, it, it's been torn. So one of our guys from the lab, Brooks Raley's, who pitched unbelievably the other night, uh, came in and threw, and I don't know what he got out of the gym. He had four outs. He's a left-handed pitcher and just a really bright guy and understands his, the way that he pitches and a just devastating breaking ball. But so it's, it's been, you know, I've been torn cause I've been, you know, I, I'm a big underdog guy. Like I, I want the Rays, you know, I always root for the A's, you know, obviously the Brewers, small market teams. And so to watch them and, and really get into their backstories, I, I, I love, I love the Rays. You know, I, I really hope they do pull it off. Um, but I will say that, I love seven games and I love the fact that, you know, we didn't have three off days because they swept. So kudos to the Astros for fighting. They are really digging in deep and that young pitching staff's doing an awesome job too. We had a unfortunate, um, uh, news event happened this week with Joe Morgan who passed away. Um, God, another hall of famer in 2020 that has passed away, but Joe Morgan, we've talked about him on this podcast. He is a hall of famer. And sometimes uh, I've been critical of his hall of fame numbers or the numbers that he put up in his professional career. Uh, but I want to pass this number along. Joe Morgan had four seasons with at least 50 extra base hits, 50 stolen bases and 100 bases on balls. The rest of the major league baseball players in history that have combined, um, Everybody combined out of the 16, whatever it is now, a little bit over 17,000, including your father, that played the major league level, that have had that same statistic. You ready for this? Zero. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. It, it, you know, and, and nobody steals bases anymore. I guess that's probably the, the clincher. Yeah. Unfortunately. I, I, I had this um, – I, I so I, I was thinking I was I so I looked at Joe Morgan when he was in his prime playing. I looked at Pete Rose. I I, I ended up I ended up looking at your googling your father as well and looking at just you know Ted. I looked at Ted Williams and I looked at Mike Schmidt. I looked at um, Dante Bichette. I looked at some of these guys when they were younger uh, playing in the game and during their careers. And I, I want to ask you: Do players nowadays? I don't know what it is. They just look different I, I don't they look younger i know the, the league is getting younger and players coming up they're getting a lot younger 
but they just there's a, that even when Dante Bichette, for example, was in his 20s, you know, in his prime of his career, 27, 28 years old, he looked like he was a grown man in his late 30s, early 40s. I mean, Bryce Harper's in his prime, for example, right now, and God bless him, he's got great genes. He looks like he's still 21 years old. I, is it just me, or is it just now I'm getting older and I? I don't look at it with the same look at the players with the, the same lens through the same lens like I did when I was a kid. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I think we're getting older. Okay, <laughs> that's what I see because I notice the same thing. I mean, you look at Will Smith, and I think he went to his prom last night. You know, right after the game, like I mean, he looks like and Bueller looks like a, a a little kid out there. So I, I think as 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 we get older and we age. But yeah, I think back in the day, I think people did look. I don't know if it was the way the photography was set or, or you know, the, the way that it's, you know, shown. The photography is shown through non-digital images and NHD that guys did definitely look. They definitely looked older back in the day. You know, there's 42-year-old Tom – or 40, is he 43? 42-year-old, whatever he is, 43-year-old Tom Brady here in Tampa. The guy looks like, again, he's 25. There was a quarterback, I forget who it was, maybe it was George Hallis, I don't remember, but somebody who played at 42, it was Tom Brady's age, playing in the NFL, he looked like he was in his 60s. So yeah. something, is, something has changed. I, I think humans have just evolved. I don't know what it is. I, I maybe think it's the dieting. I think it's the diet, especially in Brady's. I mean, I don't think Brady, you know, drinks bourbon between quarters <laughs> like Bradshaw probably used to. <laughs> I think it's a different day for those elite athletes. They're putting elite fuel through their system. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure that makes a big difference as well. Yeah, Terry Bradshaw was bald by was by 29, and Tom Brady still has a full head of hair. God bless him. That's right. Uh, uh, 1972, by the way, this date in baseball history. You'll like this one. Monday. Today's on this Monday. So uh, on this date in baseball history, October 19th, 1972. Oh, it's already October 19th. My God. 2020 is almost over, right? Thank God. Yes. The Oakland Athletics stage a dramatic comeback of the World Series against the Cincinnati Reds, trailing 2-1 to one in the ninth inning. The A's string together four consecutive hits, including three by pinch hitters Gonzalo Marquez, Don Mincher, and Angel Mangual. I think I said those names right. They should sound familiar to you because your father, I think, I looked it up too, and I want to just – reiterate with you i think your dad played on this team uh those guys provide the game-winning run with the opposite field single uh, on yeah. anyway um and that even the series at two games apiece your dad was on that team correct do you have any he memories was. of that uh no i wasn't i wasn't uh born yet but we okay. have some you know some video the best video of the world series is a random video we were just looking at this actually a couple years ago of my oldest sister riding Charlie Finley's donkey before one of the home games <laughs> in Oakland is the funniest picture. We're like, oh my god, that's that's you know my my mom's my grandparents were in the 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 photography business. You know they had a I don't think you could maybe it was an audio video back in the day, but it was you know it was a camera store you know back in the back in the seventies that they opened, and so my mom actually had a video camera for the World Series, and so it was home video shooting before the game, and sure enough, Charlie Finley's got his mule out there, you know, and my sister's riding the mule, you know, during pregame. So yeah, we have we have really cool memories of the seventy two series, and um, you know it's funny you mentioned Joe Morgan, my dad, you know he's been sick. So I visited him in, in the in the hospital. I finally got to go see him a couple of days. He just got released yesterday, so he's back home. It's awesome. He's doing awesome. But we we were talking about Joe Morgan. It's it was like the last thing I wanted my dad to see was that Joe Morgan passed away while he's in the hospital, right? My dad's the same same exact age. He's seventy seven. So I'm like, okay, you know, he's of course he's got his like iPad there, so he's catching up on all the news. But we got we got to talking about that and he said, you know, during the seventy two series you know, Joe and I were talking before the game and he, he said, you know, who thought two guys from uh, that played on and I, I can't remember the name. It was like, you know, Joe Smith's Chevrolet, you know, back in 19, you know, 62, you know, we're going to be playing against each other in the World Series. And I guess my dad played when my dad was in college, they had a semi-pro league in the Bay Area. And so he and Joe Morgan were the right side of the infield on that on that semi-pro team. So they they actually went back to when they were really young, you know, in the late teen when they were in their late teens or early twenties, and then you know they get to face off in the World Series. So 
he had that tie. I mean, I don't think they were close friends and talked all the time, but they were, you know, definitely acquaintances. So it was, you know, it was a little, he was a little bummed out to hear that for sure. Yeah, I was bummed too because Joe Morgan was one of the voices of my childhood listening to him on Sunday Night Baseball. I used to love watching Sunday Night, still do, but um, I used to love his analysis. And he was a good teacher on Sunday Night Baseball and a good communicator. So I think Joe Morgan will be missed. Recently, he was in the Reds organization as, I guess, a special advisor, um, which made me happy to hear and see mm-hmm. because uh, I love when old baseball guys are still in the game. We still need that. Another. Um, this state in baseball history, I want to kind of that stuck out to me. By the way, uh, I want to pass along. This is becoming like our, our the Jim and Jake sports show here. Um, Kurt Schilling in 2004 on this day, pitching on a dislocated ankle tendon, held down by three. Oh, geez, sutures. I don't have to Google sutures. that. Sutures. Yeah, sutures. Sutures. Yeah, S U T U R E S. Um, that was put in the day before. It sounds like just screws. I guess. I guess that's the that's the the synonym of that. But. Um, hmm. Uh, he gave up one run on seven innings um, for the Red Sox, who beat the Yankees that night 4-2, saved the season, and uh, they forced a Game 7, which they would eventually win. The bloody, the old Bloody Sock game. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely remember the Bloody Sock. Yeah, yeah the, the disgusting Bloody Sock game, which uh, lives in history now. I'm trying uh, to figure out how he hurt his ankle. How did he dislocate the ankle? Wasn't I it? I, th- I thought it was earlier. I want to say it was earlier in the series uh, that he did it. I don't remember. That's like Tony Finau. Remember when Tony Finau like dislocated his ankle in the Masters in the par three, made a hole in one, went running down the the fairway in the par three contest, hit like a hole in the ground, and it, it was the grossest thing I've ever seen. And he popped it back in and played the Masters. Like I don't even know how you do that. He's made out of rubber. I don't like those injuries. Oh, they are vicious. Like the Dak, like the Dak Prescott, unfortunately, his, yep. the, his injury last weekend. I can't watch it. You know, I can't watch that. I don't know why networks show like the Alex Smith injury from a couple of years ago with the broken leg. I don't. Oh God, I can't. I can't watch it. I don't know how people watch it. Yeah. Anyway. Bad uh, stuff. And also one more. Uh, we mentioned the Rays earlier. Um, the Tampa Bay Rays on this date advanced the World Series for the first time in franchise history in 2008. They beat the Red Sox 3-1 to in Game 7. Matt Garza pitched that night, allowed two hits and one run in seven innings. David Price got the save, and that was the start pretty much of the Rays. Uh, what do you call this run here? It's been 12 years that they've been on this run that, that <laughs> they've, they've just been winning and winning and winning and winning consistently. I don't know what you call it. You know, it's a it's a thing of beauty, quite honestly. You know, they they run a tight ship. The fact that all those guys are still in Tampa, all those front office guys, scouting scouting and development guys are still there, and nobody's poached a lot of them off is is mind blowing. I know uh, Matt Arnold from the Brewers, you know, was part of that. You know, and they they nabbed him. The Brewers nabbed him up. Because he was part of the Tampa Bay staff, you know, I don't know, it's probably eight years ago, seven years ago when they started that run. But those guys are, uh, I mean, that what an amazing, I wish there was better fan support down there. For, and maybe there is now. Um, I wish they had a new stadium. I wish they had something because they're doing it with different guys and they're doing it with young guys every single year. And people, people give the A's a little bit more credit for some reason. Oh, the A's are always, you know, the small market underdog, but the fact that the Rays have been doing it and getting much, you know, getting further into the playoffs and producing more players, there's definitely something to be said there. Yeah, I agree. And and with what they do in terms of of the the player development and drafting, and it just seems like everybody's always on the same page in that organization, which is so hard and and could be at times a rarity in some organizations throughout professional baseball. And we kind of alluded to that last week, or maybe it was the week before, um, talking about, no, I think it was last week, talking about um, everybody being on the same page and having the right people in place um, to get the right message out there to players, especially from the scouting and player development side. But it seems like the Rays just have that sort of mastered. They got the right people. They got the right people in place, the right people talking about the right things, uh, the right personalities that are that are, uh, you know, able to get along and and to take criticism or to take advice. I, 
they got a pretty good mixture there. They want to hopefully keep together. Hopefully they do. All right, well, let's get into today's topic. And before we do so, we want to remind you to like and subscribe to the podcast. We're on social media at Jim Tara and at Epstein Hitting. Our email, jimbopodcast21 at gmail.com. And, of course, our YouTube page, uh, the Lab Epstein Hitting Podcast YouTube page with full episodes and clips that are being constantly uploaded from previous episodes. So please check that out. As well, numbers are pretty good over there. We're getting some some views on our previous episodes of videos and uh, some clips as well. So our topic at hand today, the rising number in strikeouts, our episode titled The Strikeout Pandemic. How fitting. Uh, I wanted to pass along some numbers. Strikeouts have been on the rise for years. It's been no secret. I think everybody knows that. Everybody who watches the game of baseball, even if you're a casual fan, can see that. In fact, some organizations not so much encourage it. But they don't certainly frown upon it. And since 2015, strikeouts have rose from 7.8 to 8.7. So almost a full strikeout per game. And that's per team. That's probably per team, right? That's for that's just in general in the league. Okay. And um, 2015 was right around the time when launch angle came into play with the new technology. So it's a low-hanging fruit argument to, and question to ask you. But is there any sort of correlation? Yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, you want me to elaborate on that? I would like you to please elaborate. <laughs> uh, so, all right, you ready? We're going to start the stopwatch. So strikeouts are up. We need a robo zone. We've already talked about that. I mean, are you watching the same playoff games I'm watching? Come on, man. I am. Come on. I, I know you're tilt. You're starting to sway towards the robo zone a little bit. There's so many missed pitches on both sides. Both sides. Strikes that are called balls. Balls that are called strikes. Anyway, I digress. Listen, be so, Angel Hernandez isn't, isn't umpiring behind the plate right. in the series. Are He's you probably always, in, you know, well, this, two, is, this it, is true. It's 2020. One thing at a time here. <laughs> yeah. So, so pitchers are, pitchers are, pitchers are good. They're everybody's velocity. And I think there was, we should actually do, do some research on this. I'm pretty sure they changed the way that velocity is calculated a couple years back, maybe six or seven years back where it's calculated, not with a gun, but with something or, or out of the hand versus halfway to the plate or something like that, where everybody picked up two or three miles an hour. So we can't be like, okay, everybody just throws, you know, 98 now. Maybe they were throwing 95 before. Now it just looks like they're throwing 98. So, but we're looking at velocities. I'm looking at the guy from the Dodgers that looks like he's taking a nap and throwing 101 miles an hour. So we have guys that are throwing really hard. We're having guys that are exploiting weaknesses. Okay. So, so many riding zone. Uh, we're seeing shifts. So I don't know how many line drives and hard ground balls I've seen up the middle that are out. I mean, a lot. I mean, you, you take a line drive back to the middle, it's an out because either the shortstop or the second baseman is playing there. So what do we do to counteract that? Well, there's four infielders and only three outfielders. And there's only three outfielders and there's a lot more real estate out there. So what we need to do is we need to change our miss where our miss used to be, we're going to hit line drives. And then if we miss, maybe we hit a ground ball. So we're going to shoot for 60% line drives, right? That's our ultimate goal. And then 30% of those, you know, maybe we'll hit into the ground and then 10% of our total will hit in the air. Well, now it's a difference. Now we're shooting for maybe 50% line drives, 40% fly balls. And if we roll over one, it's okay. So in order to do that, in order to get to the bottom of the ball, we have to, you know, either get our there's different ways to do that. I, I'm I'm in the camp of let's get our legs to the bottom of the ball. But there's a lot of people that say, okay, let's just get our barrel underneath a little bit sooner, right? So we're gonna drop our barrel sooner, which is totally cool. So to drop your barrel, I don't teach that, but to drop your barrel sooner you're going to get exposed much, much more. That's just the way it is. You're going to foul off. I posted something the other day on, uh, on Twitter. I've kind of been throwing a lot of clips out there and it was, I can't remember who it was. It was the catcher for the, 
for the Astros, the guy that just, I mean, he can really catch. And he, he doesn't hit. He's just not a hitter, and that's that's fine, too. Know your role, right? So he got a 2-0 fastball right down the middle, like top of the thighs, and he swung under it and missed it. Okay? And I'm like, well, here's why you, you hit 200. You know, here's why you hit 220. So I posted it. I said, is this, would you consider this a barrel dump? You know, he obviously wasn't on play. So I... Of course, it's Twitter. So I heard back, oh, you can't just blame it on that. His timing was off. That's what a couple of these experts said. And I said, I don't think their timing is off when he because he barely fouled it off. Right. He just tipped the bottom of it. But he when he tipped it, it was right at his front toes. So if you can't hit a thigh high fastball when you're heading the count at your toes. Now, if he let the ball get deep and he made contact six or eight inches behind that, then I would be like, yeah, he was, he was late and under, but he was under the whole way and he didn't get back to it. If he was on time, he would have pulled it. It would have been six inches further than his front toes. He would have pulled it in the seats. So people blame everything on timing. Oh, he was late. Oh, he was early. And that, that does tend to bother me. So I'm getting off topic here. We're talking about strikeouts, but there's a guy, I, I don't know what happened that about, but maybe he ended up striking, right? Why did he strike out? Because his account was 2-0. and He got his pitch. He had a barrel dump issue. Then he went to 2-1. and Then maybe he got through a nice slider. He took it. Now he's 2-2. Two and two, And then he, you know, swings under a high fastball strike three. So that's how strikeouts get made because we're, uh, we're adjusting our swing to get to the bottom of the ball, which creates, you know, a swing plane issue where we get exposed and then our timing has to be perfect. Okay. So that's one issue that's causing strikeouts to go up. So one is, you know, whatever pitching is better guys have, uh, you know, crazy rosin suntan lotion combinations all over their hats and their arms and their whatever. Walker Bueller's got purple fingers. I'm still trying to figure out how he doesn't have any substance holding his blisters together. Am I the only one seeing that? I don't know. Maybe because I'm, you know, looking more carefully. So pitchers are no. You're right. I, yeah, 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 I, I saw it too, and and yeah, it's kind of it's kind of gross. To well, be you honest. can't. There's you can't have any any substance on your hands when you're a pitcher. Like it's that's like the number one rule. Like you can't have anything on there. You can't have super glue on your hands to hold your blisters together. You can't have you know pine tar on your fingers to get better grip. It's just kind of the way it is. Anyway. So, you know, pitchers are good. Guys are um, have changed their swings in order to get to the bottom of the ball, right? And then, you know, lastly, it's, hey, I have two strikes. Why am I going to give up here? You know, actually, there's one more after this. But why, why would I give up with two strikes? You know, it's one more chance for me to hit a ball out of the park. And if I strike out, what's the difference between me striking out and me popping up? Or me striking out and me rolling over. Okay, that's that's the mindset. When maybe one out of 20 times, one out of 30 times, when I have two strikes, I hit a home run. Okay, so maybe I hit an extra five or six home runs a year, and I get paid for that. Maybe that's an extra 10 RBIs a year. So that's kind of the, the mindset of, hey, I need that run. Because quite honestly, when you have really hard baseballs and you have really good pitchers, and balls carry like that first home run Seager hit last night, just carried and carried and carried. He had good, you know, he had backspin on it and just stayed in the air for a long time. When you have all those combinations that say, look, I might be able to miss a ball in the air and it'll still go out of the park. I would rather do that than hit a line drive up the middle because it might get caught. And is it ever going to, ch- I, don't, I don't know if it'll change. I, I will say there's been some really good two strike RBI hits in the postseason, um, I, I know that the the Dodgers do hit a lot of home runs, but they hit a lot of doubles too, and a lot of a lot of hard hit base hits. So I don't think hitting is as easy as oh, I'm just going to hit everything in the air. I think in time you can force yourself to do that, and you just have to weigh the risk reward. Am I going to hit enough home runs to stay in the league? Is my timing good enough to do that? Because that's what it comes down to when you when you're dropping your barrel early, you know, in the pitch point, early in the zone, and you're hitting. What happens is your happy zone is only maybe three to four inches big. Like think of a cube, three to four inch cube. Where if you're on point longer, 
to get more to the middle of the ball and to stay on plane like that, which is, you know, more of like an average, you know, 10 to 15 degree launch angle. What happens is that cube might be like 20 inches by 20 inches. So you can, maybe your vision isn't 2012. Maybe your vision's 2025. Well, if it is, then your timing's not going to be as good. What is your rhythm like? Do you have good control over your stride? If you do, if you don't, then you need a bigger contact window and you can't dump your barrel. So guys that, you know, tend to dump their barrel a little bit that are still really good. Uh, Freddie Freeman, Freddie Freeman gets, he's got, you know, he's a low ball hitter, right? But mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, that dude catches up to pitches at his belt in his timing window. If you look at it, if he's, he had a home run the other night, if he was two inches late, he's toast maybe one inch late. He caught it absolutely perfect. So when you have guys with elite timing, elite mental uh, plans, what they're looking for, control over their body, then you can have that little bit of a barrel drop and still hit, you know, 280, 270 and above. And when you can do that, then it's the best of both worlds. But when you have somebody say like, you know, the the gentleman, I, I, I should look it up the catcher for the for the Astros right now when you have somebody like that that maybe doesn't have that that elite skill set to be a hitter you know whatever slowing your heart rate down whatever it might be he's going to get exposed because his timing isn't as perfect as those other guys and maybe his anticipation and plan isn't either Marty Maldonado is the catcher Maldonado yeah you were on a you were on a great um you were on a great I hate to say rant but you were you were doing well there I don't want to. I don't want to interrupt. But it was Martin Maldonado, and you mentioned the two-strike hitting in the postseason. It's been better this year, and, and one that comes a bat that comes to mind last night, Friday. Yep. You know, uh, that that came to mind for me was Christian Pache, who failed to get yeah. down a bunt for the Braves, and then with two strikes, tough pitch slider, outer half left up, got it off the end of the bat, muscled it into center field. He battled, and that scored a run for the Braves last night, Friday. That was a fantastic at bat i was thinking when you were talking about that i was like it had to be pache because that was an incredible at bat because i don't know who was pitching but they were nasty and they were throwing him really tough pitches and the pitch he hit and fought off to center field for an rbi was a really tough pitch um and it made me laugh because they they you know ron washington goes down and tells him okay we're gonna do a safety bunt here (laughs) (laughs) like it was as obvious as day First and third one out. Like, what are we going to do here? We got to scratch this run in. Um, that was like uh, Coach Coach Beezer at, at Mizzou, man. We uh, the year I was there, I think every first and third with less than less than two outs was a safety squeeze, and we probably we probably scored on 85 percent of those at bats. Which was so every time I see first and third, I'm like, oh, here's a good time for a safety squeeze. Okay, but two camps on that too. We never had a big inning, right? First and third, nobody out. You know, we give we give away an out. We do move one runner, another runner into scoring position and get a run. But it it does take away. You know, it it is a momentum killing uh, move unless there's a throwing error. Sometimes you force an error, you force confusion at the college level on a, on a safety squeeze and a bunt and a guy throws it away. And now all of a sudden, you know, you got one guy in two guys on and nobody out. So it's kind of a fun play at the college level, At the big league level. You really, really don't see it. And you can tell it was totally the right situation for it last week or last night or Friday. It was, I mean, the absolute perfect, like crunch time. And he was so uncomfortable. He got a perfect pitch to bunt. And he was so uncomfortable bunting in the box, you know, that he hadn't done it all year. So, yeah, it's hard to make guys do that at the last minute. Well, he was uncomfortable. I I just kind of want to throw this out there. Fundamentally, I do people know a little bit about fundamentals. uh, And with bunting there, I know what he did wrong. He didn't get on plane with the pitch. He didn't use his legs. His legs weren't underneath him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) preset. You know, we were... We were we were a big preset, you know, or I am with bunting because I, I, I finished, you know, Cal State Fullerton and I probably bunted more in the, the first month of uh, being on campus than I took live swings. Like, yeah, I mean, it is really taught and that, I mean, we would just preset it. Everybody knows we're going to bunt to first base in that situation. So preset to bunt. Then all you got to do is make contact. But when guys, you know, start with the bat square and then they try to create that angle, 
you know, it creates problems. So I, you know, it may be called Epstein hitting, but I could teach some bunting. Let me tell you, Coach Horton, God bless him, taught me the fundamentals of bunting and pounded it in my head for, for uh, you know, a pretty long time. So uh, now people do ask me at the lab, hey, we gonna, you know, can you teach me how to bunt? And I'm like, oh, it just makes my the hair stand up. I'm like, absolutely. You got to <laughs> know the fundamentals because you know what? That bunt, you know, he, luckily he came through and got a base hit. But if he didn't, and they would have lost by one run, that poor kid wouldn't have been able to sleep for a couple months. So you're saying you grit your teeth when you teach when you have to teach bunting. Teach teach bunting okay. only only if it's not in a team environment. If it's okay. in a team environment, I have no problem doing that. But if I have a kid that comes in like for a lesson, can you teach me how to bunt? The answer is no. I'm not going to waste <laughs> time during our 60 minutes on bunting. But I'll meet you after. <laughs> we'll go outside. We'll do it after. We just can't do it in the lab. Uh, you mentioned a good uh, thing there, too, uh, moments ago about approach. Guys' approaches might be a little bit different, might be better than they were in previous years. And I think that's another issue within professional baseball, that coaches that maybe know the fundamentals but don't have the wisdom and experience that they need or um, they could pass along to players that help them with their approach. We hear that a lot now with guys who are coaches uh, and, and gals, quite frankly, that are coaches that uh, are very smart, know, know the, the fundamentals of hitting and know the technology, but don't understand how to teach a proper approach. And maybe that's something, too, that is really hurting guys in player development and when they get to the major league level, why, why we're seeing so many strikeouts. Well, absolutely. So we have our certification training this coming weekend, and I think half of the guys are returners that are coming, you know, guys that have been through certification, and that's what they really want to dive into. They're going to, you know, that's the other thing. You know, we can teach someone. I can I can teach a guy that's, uh, you know, he's, he's, a, he's an attorney. I can teach him what to look for and give him drills to create a good swing. But, you know, the, the intangibles are can we create a hitter? that can perform in stressful environments can perform when someone's trying to get them out. You know, that's kind of the difference. So, you know, that's why the certification is so cool because a lot of them are dads and they just want to give their kids fun. And they have a 10 year old kid. And it's like, I'm going to invest in myself to teach this kid the fundamentals of the swing and then let them go out and play and learn the game, you know, by playing on a team and by getting a lot of reps. So, you know, learning that, that approach, I, I think, Yes, I think we talked about that in our player development series when it was like, hey, let's couple, you know, our upper level minor league, you know, double A, triple A with guys that have big league experience and that have that mindset. You know, that was my dad's greatest gift, which not a lot of people knew um, was I mean, he did write a book on, you know, the, the, the mental mental side of hitting. But anticipation, my dad had. Terrible. He still does, right? Well, he has new lenses now. He had to actually have his lenses replaced. But he, his vision was 2800 uncorrected. I mean, mm. that's like terrible. His, that's Coke bottles. That's Harry Carey. Okay. <laughs> so when he would wear contacts, the best he ever got corrected was like 2030. So here's a guy that never really saw spin. You know, he never saw the ball come out of the hand. Sometimes in day games, you said he saw the ball a lot better. It was brighter. But he had to be smarter. I mean, here's a guy that had great athleticism, right? I mean, he played multiple sports. He was a good athlete. He was big and strong. But he couldn't see. I mean, that is a real. That's why he couldn't play the outfield. They tried to make him an outfielder uh, in Baltimore when they when they brought him up. He won the you know he was the player of the year. I think he almost won the triple crown in Triple A. He was actually the minor league player of the year. He went from A ball to Triple A, skipped Double A, player of the year in both both leagues. They bring him to the big leagues. Boot Powell's playing first. They're like, Mike, you got to learn how to play the outfield. He's like, okay. So he goes in the outfield. He can't see the ball off the bat. And when the balls would get really high, he wouldn't even see them at night. So, I mean, he was a total liability vision-wise. So what did he have to do to compete and to still have a job? He had to be smarter. He had to cheat. And that's why when he got with Ted Williams, it changed his entire life because Williams was all about anticipation. And he was all about knowing what that pitcher is trying to do. And so with today's technology, you can do that. But pitchers now have a better idea, too. 
and pitchers throw, you know, you hardly see a three, one fastball. I don't know how many three, one sliders I've seen, you know, nowadays that, you know, it's, it's a little bit tougher because pitchers are, are making adjustments and they have better game plans based on what hitters hitters do. Um, but approach is by far what keeps guys in the big leagues. You know, when you have guys that come up and they have all the tools, great. But then they struggle. And why does it take players, you know, four or five years to really hit their stride in the big leagues? It has to do with approach. It has to do with being involved in that big league game, being surrounded by other players that maybe mentor them and say, hey, what are you looking for here? You know, how is this guy trying to get you out? Or having great hitting coaches that have that experience at that level that are telling you, um, hey, they're going to try to exploit you this way. Then you have to have the ability to make that adjustment physically. So it is that when you can find the right people that have the the wisdom of, you know, what's going on in this game and then can relay information to that player on how to make the adjustment based on what their game plan is, then you, you kind of have the perfect coaching staff. Good stuff right there. Okay. I, I'm forging ahead with some numbers. I, I think you may have mentioned it, though. And it's sort of an obvious one, but I want to confirm it because it adds more context to the episode. Last decade jumped almost a strikeout and a half throughout Major League Baseball. We mentioned some numbers earlier. Has pitching really gotten that much better? Because Major Leaguers are supposed to be able to hit, the old say, as the old saying goes, uh, a, a bullet shot out of a gun. They could hit that. Uh, has pitching really gotten that much better? It sure seems like it. I think pitching, we talked a little bit about this, and I don't know which one of our 26 episodes, but uh, pitchers don't throw more than five or six innings anymore. Mm-hmm. So Drysdale used to have really good stuff too. But when did you get to Drysdale in the seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth innings <laughs> when it was zero to zero? Mm-hmm. I mean, guys threw longer, and they may have been 94 when the game started, and they're 90 by the sixth inning. Well, we don't see that anymore. We have all these power arms that are specialists, and how they match up with different hitters. I mean, it's just like Cash. He he goes for matchups. He doesn't necessarily have a guy that throws the seventh inning. Remember the Royals when they won the World Series? You know, Wade Davis threw this inning and you know, whatever. They had different guys that threw the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. You know, it's just how it was. All we got to do is get through six. Well, you know, Cash does it differently. Hey, we got this matchup that's really important. I'm going to bring Castilla in now, you know, in the, in the sixth inning or the seventh inning in a key situation maybe versus finishing off the game with them. So I think the way that they manage the arms, we have we have larger guys in the bullpen, meaning we have we have less guys coming off the bench position-wise. We have more arms in the bullpen we can choose from. Those arms are set before each series. You know, who's going to match up against two? And, uh, you know, I, I do think that pitchers have better stuff, but I also think that they're fresher. You know, they're, they don't get they don't allow them to get tired. They don't allow them to see the same hitter three times. You know, once you work your way two two times through the lineup and that hitter has an idea of what you're looking for or, or what you got in the window of maybe your arm slot. Boom, it's time for a fresh arm. I think that's really tough on hitters because, you know, as pitchers, you know, Ted Williams used to say, you should always take take the first pitch off a new pitcher. You're going to see more than once. Well, now all of a sudden, maybe you only see that guy one time. So you don't have the luxury of sitting there and just tunneling the first. Mike Trout does, you know, he does it all the time. But tunneling that first pitch and being saying, okay, well, he's he's a little bit faster than he was last time, or a little bit slower, or his arm angle looks a little lower, or okay, now I what it looks like out of his hand. All of a sudden, we're just jumping in the line of fire without being. I mean, the first time through the lineup back in the day, you would just you wanted to see pitches. If I can see every pitch that he has my first time up, I'm going to have a good game. Well, now all of a sudden I only see him one more time. So I'm 0 for 1 because I, I fought, you know, I took a fastball. I took a slider maybe. Okay, I've seen all his pitches. Now all of a sudden I got a fight. Maybe I make him out. Now I come up the second time up. Maybe I have a better at bat. Maybe I don't. And now I'm ready to go the third at bat. I've already seen six, eight pitches off this guy. Boom, here comes a new arm, you know, in a different slot with different pitches. And, and that makes that makes hitting a lot harder. You know, the Nationals winning the World Series last year, I thought it was was so important for the game. But it really was a kind of a throwback 
the win because you mentioned with pitchers now how the Royals in 2015 had the bridge um, to Wade Davis. Well, last year, the Nationals, they relied strictly on their starting pitching because their bullpen. It got better with Daniel Hudson, but it was very, very weak going into the postseason last year. It was very, very weak comparatively to other teams, maybe outside the Dodgers, who still I question if they can really manage their bullpen even this year in 2020. But there's different strategies, I think, that are still out there. Some old school, some new school. We saw it last year. Old school pitching strategy because it was forced upon that team, the Nationals, to if they wanted to win the World Series, to go about that strategy. And then you see it this year with some more analytically inclined teams to game plan their pitching. And John Smoltz made a good point on one of the games, um, analyst for Fox, talking about how – with the analytics, they can give you a game plan, but you never really know once the game starts how a guy's going to feel that day, too. And hitters have to and lineups have to prepare for this and all of these elements if they want to be successful. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a, there's a lot that goes into the, the stew, you know, <laughs> but when you got when you got Scherzer. Right. And uh, why can't I think you got Strasburg? Yeah, you kind of ride those horses. Right. You know, that those two guys are equivalent to four guys, you know, paying for four arms in your bullpen. So if you're going to pay those guys, those horses that get out there and get the job done, then, you know, you're going to have less in the bullpen. I mean, it's it's you, you, you know, contrary to that would be the Astros who have all these rookies. Nobody's got experience. Everybody's throwing two innings. And that's what Dusty's got to do. Dusty's got to manage what he has there, just like. uh uh, Dave Martinez managed what he had there. You know, thank goodness for Doolittle last year, right? That guy really came up, you know, came up clutch. So it is fun. It, it is fun to kind of see that because it was starting pitching, starting pitching, you know, that did it. And now it's kind of like, uh, you know, Derek Mayfrew, I don't know how many innings, two, two, three innings yesterday. You know, it's just every in the playoffs, it's so fun because it's all hands on deck. And we have to manage this like it's the last game of our year. And they are. And that's what that's what makes it fun. But um, I, I do think, you know, maybe during the year you're going to have guys that are trying to get you to the postseason and you're going to have guys that you lengthen out. And you're going to have more middle relief pitchers that throw three, four five innings in the middle of a game if a starter gets in trouble. But um, I think for the most part, we are seeing we are seeing changes in the, you know, hey, I want you to throw as hard as you can. I want you to be as nasty as you can for, you know, two or three innings and then we'll bring somebody else in, you know, do your job. Get your four, five, six guys out, and then we're going to pass the baton to somebody else. Yeah. So in sports, you know, life, pendulum always swings back the other way. And it's happened in baseball millions of times with even some small things. But pitching is getting better, it seems, year in and year out. And I I think we've crushed that that threshold of of starting pitchers now throwing 99 plus. Uh, I mean, Dustin May was doing it on Friday night, um, throwing 98, averaging 98, 99 for the Dodgers throughout um, his start. And and guys are doing that across baseball throughout their starts every single day, really. Um, And then you mix in some of the nasty off-speed stuff, the power sliders. I mean, his curve, Dustin May is a curveball, but it looks like a slider. (laughs) You know, it's a it's a curveball, but it's a power curveball. It looks like a slider. It's ridiculous. I just don't see I don't know about you. I don't see this amount of strikeouts that are happening in the game nowadays really ever going away. I kind of hope they do, but I don't really at least in the near future. I don't see it happening. I don't either. I I think you can try to put balls and play with two strikes. I think we can make an adjustment there and hope to find a hole. There's actually a lot of holes with the shifts. And I would say two strikes is when you're going to find those holes because you're taking a defensive swing. Who took a defensive swing the other day and hit a ground ball to the right side? Oh, and it was there was a shift, and you could see him. Oh, it was George Springer, right? And it was just like so out of the ordinary. He took a bait, and it was just a huge. He scored one or two runs, and the place, you know, the the, the dugout went crazy because it just wasn't George Springer. You know, it wasn't. It looked like he was playing Pepper with you know the second baseman but there was no second baseman he just took what they could give him on a on a ball away and i think when you are in a two strikes situation and you shorten up to put a ball in play it's going to expose the shift a little bit more the shift is set up for when you're hitting rockets you know up the middle or you're hitting rockets to the pull side you know when the counts in your favor 
but it's not necessarily for when you're in a defensive mode. So that's really the only the only thing I could say is you you can adjust your two strike approach, you know, to to lower strikeouts. Is that a good idea? Or like I said, if you hit a hit a home run or a double with two strikes, one every twenty something at bats, you know, is that going to be more beneficial? Now I don't have access to the data that that says you know one way or the other with that, but I think now it's the fact that I'm just going to still try to hit a gapper. You know, maybe my mindset as a hitter would be, okay, I'm in defensive mode, but maybe I'm not giving it away. Maybe I'm going to get beat middle in with a middle in fastball, but I'm not going to get beat with a breaking ball here with two strikes. So I'm still going to be aggressive, but I'm going to let that ball travel. And if the guy throws me a two seamer inside, I'm going to lose. Right. That's what I'm going to, you know, what, how does this guy finish people? So that's my approach. How does this guy usually finish? Does he finish guys in? As you finish guys with breaking balls away, whatever the stats, you know, lean, he finishes most guys with breaking balls away. That's what I'm going to sit on with two strikes. And if he busts me in and I, I get stood up, oh, well, at least I didn't chase that breaking ball that the majority of the time I, I would have chased get away. Or I get that breaking ball and I stay on it and I hit a double to right center field or left center field. Yeah. I got to ask, who'd you say get away to? What do you mean, get away? Was that just, oh, was that just explaining something about hitting? It must be. Yeah, there's no one here. I'm in total isolation. Oh, okay. Although, I, although I usually do yell that at my kids, so maybe it just was like I saw a squirrel <laughs> and was like, get away. <laughs> <laughs> I use a shoe with my dog. There you shoe. go. Shoe. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, sorry about that. Oh, by the way, Nick Marcakis, too, is another guy I saw in a bat the other night. Two strikes, inside-out swing, just went with it the other way, hit it mm-hmm. through the vacant hole on the left side. He's such a good hitter, isn't he, Nick Marcakis? My God. Maybe one of the most underrated hitters in baseball and names mm-hmm. in baseball. I guess because he spent so much time in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I, you just he's a quality quality hitter, but why don't, we, why don't we hear as much about him? I don't know. Maybe he doesn't, maybe he doesn't hit enough home runs. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't drive in enough runs. Did he play last? Is he hurt? No, he played. He played last or Friday night. Yeah, he did. Okay. Yeah. Maybe because he's boring. Maybe that's what it is. He's boring. Yeah. He's a good outfielder too. Yeah. Very strong arm. Yeah. He had some down years though there, which I think maybe hurt him. But he he is kind of a a boring hitter. But he's I think if you love the pure uh, art of hitting. You'll like Nick Marcakis. I think he's an excellent hitter. And they um, used to say that uh, LeMahieu was a boring hitter, too, because he hit 330 <laughs> every year. You know, Now, all of a sudden, his 330 has 20 home runs because right center in Yankee Stadium is a lot further than right center was in, in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And now, all of a sudden, he's like a home run threat. He's going to make a lot more money. So you never know. We, I think we have to do a uh, – a, a, um, mechanical breakdown series on him because he is so he is so boring but he's so fundamentally sound he's he we have to do one on him soon LeMahieu I have a ton of video on LeMahieu because it's so good yeah all right um and and I kind of wrapping up the episode here um kind of the final point question I want to ask maybe Mm -hmm. we don't fully understand this technology at hand um but how do you think hitting will evolve to a point where we can counter this best pitching that we've ever seen that seemingly gets better every single year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, we have to replicate it. You know, we have to, we have to replicate what we're going to see. If we're going to see, you know, nasty high spin rate sliders, you know, or fastballs, we need to replicate that off machines. You know, we can't replicate that off somebody throwing to us for batting practice. So, Maybe our off-season training needs to be a little bit more high-intensity, high-velocity, high-spin rate breaking ball training. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, maybe we do that, and I know a lot of teams do, before the game. Hey, who are we going to see today? Let's let's have machines. The problem with Major League Baseball parks is there there aren't six tunnels. You know, at the college colleges, you know, we, sometimes we have – we have real estate to have six tunnels in there and we can have different spins and different speeds and, and bounce guys through, but we don't really have that at the, in the big league tunnel. So, you know, maybe expanding some of that player development area at big league parks 
for training in in season you know not just spring training we have all that stuff but you know we don't always get to use that you know we can't bounce down to arizona before a series starts and 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 try to you know try to get our eyes set up you know and get our vision set up for for 98 miles an hour so that would be you know the short-term plan would be to to train our brain and our body to see that more often now big leaguers see that every day right so they eventually get used to it. You know, we get used to our surroundings. If we're always facing 60 miles an hour, let's so say all of a sudden every big leaguer was throwing 60 miles an hour, that would give everybody fits, right, mm-hmm. for two weeks. And then all of a sudden they would adjust. It was kind of like the whole Jenny Finch thing, striking out Albert Pujols and Barry Bonds. Well, if you let them that for two weeks, they would light everything up. Like, they just, it's, it's different, right? Different spin, different release points. So, Hitters adjust, hitters adapt. Um, it's just kind of part of the game. So will they adapt to pitchers still have to make pitches? You know, they can throw 98, but if they don't hit their location, a big league hitter is going to 98 is not a big deal because they see 98 all the time because 98 is like the new 93, 92, right? So they're used to that. Now they put that 98 in the top portion of the strike zone now all of a sudden you got you know you got no chance depending on your swing plane or if they put you know a breaking ball in the bottom portion of that you know working away you have no no chance of that so it comes down to the same thing that baseball has always been hitters hit mistakes pitchers that don't make mistakes win and that's just kind of the way it is Before we get to the last segment of the podcast, I want to tell you about something that actually directly correlates to my own baseball career, or what it was anyway. I told you a little bit last week about how the LaSalle community was saddened and shocked to have learned that the university has decided to cut seven programs from the school's athletic department. Now, there's a lot of people affected by this, and it's a terrible, terrible thing. We understand, of course, by the financials and whatnot. But baseball, softball, men's and women's, swimming and diving, tennis and volleyball, they were all wiped away. And being that LaSalle is such a tight-knit community, I spent five years there. Trust me, I would know. I can identify with being an explorer and what the opportunity was for me as a college baseball player. And right now, because these sports have been wiped away more than 100 current athletes and thousands more future athletes not just in the philadelphia area but um, up and down throughout the east coast will not have that opportunity to experience all that lasalle university brings to their lives so the baseball team alumni coaches and parents have come together to not only make an attempt to save the program but to change the future of lasalle forever The team is working hard to build a plan to save the program, the school, and the important values that are learned from being an esteemed member of the LaSalle community. And hey, I don't know if you noticed, but Dave Portnoy is all about trying to save LaSalle baseball, of course, and Barstool Sports, which is, I think, tremendous. So again, they need your help. And I mentioned it again last week, the links, and I'll I'll do it here right now. Uh, We're trying to raise awareness and funds for the cause. So liking, sharing, retweeting, donating, etc. Anything you could do to help make this campaign successful. Again, use the hashtag SaveLaSalleBase. Again, that is hashtag SaveLaSalleBase. You can donate at the LSU Baseball GoFundMe. That is the LaSalle University Baseball GoFundMe. And also... Find it on Instagram at Save LaSalle Baseball. Again, that is at LaSalle, uh, at Save LaSalle Baseball. And again, you can donate at LaSalle University Baseball, the GoFundMe page. All right, well, good stuff this week, as always. And uh, be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. Check out our YouTube page, the Lab Epstein Hitting Podcast, our social media channels at Jim Tara on both. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, and at Epstein Hitting. Uh, You can reach out to us there as well. 
And um, our email, jimbopodcast21 at gmail.com, which we did uh, get another email this week from a listener. And this question comes to us from Clay via jimbopodcast21 at gmail.com. Now, in Clay's email address, he has Cubs somewhere in it. So by my logic, Ooh. I'm guessing that he is from the Chicago area. He didn't tell us where he's from, but he, I'm guessing he's from the Chicago area. Or maybe he's just a diehard Cubs fan, but he could mm-hmm. be from Illinois. I'm not sure. And he's probably a diehard Cubs fan. Nevertheless, <laughs> either way, I've uh, never met anyone who wasn't pleasant or tremendous to talk to from Chi Town. I have a good friend of mine who works in the organization, um, a, an equipment guy who happens to be from Chicago. Great guy, good friend of mine. So, uh, Clay, thank you for the email. Anyway, he writes, uh, "Love the podcast." Quick question about front arm dominant kids that pull the knob hard across their chest. Leading to weak contact, oppo flares, and being late. Any suggestions on how to help those kids? That is a great question, Clay, because this is a huge problem among, I think, among youth baseball players. So thank you for that question, Clay. That was a, an excellent question. Uh, what's your take on that? That is a good question. Um, it could be typically <laughs> bottom hand dominant dominators are actually uh, better with their swing planes. So. I, I, I know what you're talking about with well, maybe lack of strength. I would say instead of it being an issue with the bottom hand, it's probably an issue with the top hand not using it enough, right? Because that's if they're going to punch somebody from their stance. So say it's a right-handed – we'll say it's, a, it's, it's more common. It's a left-handed hitter with that's right-hand dominant, right? They're going to pull their lead arm. So if they were going to box, they wouldn't box from a left-handed hitting stance, Right. They wouldn't hit somebody with their left arm. So they're not strong there. So they need to overdo top hand drills. They need to overdo keeping the barrel above their hands. If they're hitting those opposite field flares, it's probably that they're pre-extending their lead arm, which I actually see less of that usually with bottom hand. It should be easier for a bottom hand dominant player to keep their lead arm bent. Again, it just has to be bent a little bit in approach. Versus push back. But if that player is pushing their lead arm back, their dominant arm back, right before they go to rotate, that's going to cause all kinds of issues. So I would work on, you know, with that dominant handed player, you know, it, it is, it's, it's a pull. The first move when you swing is a pull with the bottom hand. And then once we turn, you know, to what we call like the short approach position, that's when the backside comes through. So the efficiency happens early with the lead arm. And the power comes through with the top hand. So they have a weak top hand. I would get them to do things with their, their we'll say, left hand. I would get them to um, do a lot of top hand drills with their left hand. You know, you can do that off a little wiffle ball machine or something. Just get them comfortable using their left hand. I'd get them to, you know, maybe punch a punching bag. You know, not, not like they're going to hurt themselves. But, you know, punch it from a left-handed stance. You know, a left-handed boxer stance. Something like that. Just to get them to bring in that part of the swing. But, um yeah, the, the weak flares to the opposite field is usually all bottom hand, regardless regardless of if their dominant hand is top or bottom. Um, it's not keeping, it's not using the top hand enough to keep the barrel up enough, and that barrel just keeps dropping below the hands as we continue to swing. And so, yeah, we got to get rid of that, especially at the young ages. That's really when kids are weaker. When kids get stronger, it's a little easier, but we got to nip that in the butt early. So. I would do a lot of top hand drills. All right, well, great stuff this week. Next week, episode number 27. It'll be October 26th when the episode is released. Monday, October 26th. The birth date of Sandy Alomar Jr. I've had, I don't know about you. Uh, maybe you have. I've had a chance to actually meet Sandy Alomar Jr. Um, and he's tremendous, but he's so smart baseball smart it, it's it's it was great um speaking with him when the couple of times short times i've gotten a chance to speak with him about the game well his birthday is october 26th and we'll be discussing doing something a little bit different next week we'll be discussing the career of sandy alomar jr very cool yeah sandy was my uh one of my idols as a kid growing up just because of the way that the ages fell but i was a tall catcher and he was Charles Johnson was pretty tall back back then, too. But Sandy was kind of like the dude. You know, he was a great catcher. He was a pretty good hitter. And he was, I don't know how tall he is, 6'3", 6'4". And so I used to try to copy his moves, how he would set up, you know, how he would move, you know, when the pitcher was in his windup. Because, you know, when you're tall. 
got long legs, you got to do something with them. So that'll be pretty fun, pretty fun episode. Yeah, we'll be discussing that one, uh, that topic next week. Again, be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. Find us on social media. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week.